So we are finally wrapping up our series in Ruth. Um, if you're sick of hearing me, this is the day to rejoice because next week we're going to be having a guest speaker and Pastor Joe will be back. So um, yeah, like Ruth has been such an incredible book to study, to look over. And I just want to quickly recap uh, what we went through last week because the passage that we're going over today is kind of well-connected. So last week in chapter 3, Ruth chapter 3, Naomi comes up with this plan for Ruth to seduce Boaz. And this is kind of like a weird thing as we saw last week. But Naomi's pretty much doing this for Ruth's sake. She, I mean, in the Bible it says, I want to do this so that it may go well with you. Um, so really Naomi's main intention is that through seducing Boaz, Boaz would be obligated to marry Ruth and therefore protecting her, providing her, caring for her. Now, um, Ruth goes to Boaz, and rather than seducing him, she actually tells him straight up, hey, spread your wings over me, if you remember that, right? Spread your wings over me, marry me, redeem me. And Boaz, in response, is touched by that. He's actually rather amazed by her boldness and expresses his willingness to, to fulfill a request. However, there's like one small issue. By law, there's a relative that's closer to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. We kind of talked about this last week. And Boaz is pretty much saying, look, um, I want to do this the right way. I want to do this by the books. If he doesn't redeem you, this closer relative, I will for sure redeem you. So Naomi and Ruth, they just play the weighty game to see what happens, right? What the relative will do if he will redeem Ruth or not. So here we are in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, let's open them to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to take this into two parts. And I will be reading for us here. This is Ruth chapter 4 verse 1. And it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Verse 3, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Elimelech was uh, the husband of Naomi. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And this is the response of the relative. And he said, I will redeem it. And, uh, verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction... The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to uh, Malon. Verse 10, And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of, this, of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And verse 11, Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in uh, Epitaph and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's take a break here. Um, there's, this is kind of like confusing, right, if you just read it for face value, but let me try to explain what's going on, okay? So Boaz, <coughs> he's actually taking the official steps to redeem Ruth. So um, this is taking place at the gate, and the gate in those times is kind of like the closest equivalent of a public courtroom setting, okay? So um, the issue is this. According to the law, this kinsman, kinsman redeemer law, there's a relative who's closer to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who, who passed away in chapter 1. So he gets priority to redeem Ruth. However, if he doesn't want to redeem Ruth, right, if he doesn't want to um, purchase the land and to take Ruth as um, his wife, it's Boaz's for the taking. So Boaz, he offers a relative the field that originally belonged to Elimelech, now in the possession of Naomi. Naomi had to sell this property to survive. And a couple weeks ago, I think we mentioned that wives in those days depended heavily on their husbands for survival. It was a heavily patriarchal society. And if the husband died, the wife who became a widow was extremely vulnerable and extremely helpless so for Naomi, selling the property would have actually given her enough means to not end up like a lot of the widows in these times who either were forced into some sort of slavery or prostitution or just ended up dying. So God implemented this law that allowed a kinsman redeemer to look after and to care for those who were extremely vulnerable, the widows. And in this case, the relative would purchase the land from Naomi uh, but there's kind of like some, uh, there's some exceptions to this because on the seventh year, uh, this is called the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. But on the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, um, the land would return back to Naomi. So if you're tracking with me, the kinsman redeemer is just really purchasing it for six years. And throughout the six years, he can make money off the land. He can do business with it. But during the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, he would lose ownership of the land, and it was kind of costly, right? It wasn't a financially wise move. So Boaz says to the relative, hey, man, let me know if you're going to do it. Because if you're not going to do it, I'm next in line, and I'm for sure going to do it. And Boaz is probably thinking at this moment, dude, you're not going to do it. It's financially not worth it. You're going to lose it in seven years anyway. And so, I mean, he's pretty sure that he can redeem, uh, Boaz can redeem both Ruth and the land. However, 
the relative decided that, you know what, I'm going to purchase it. I'm going to buy the land. Um, why? Probably because it makes him look good, especially in this honor and shame culture. So, you know, honestly, if this guy has enough money to purchase land in those days, um, he's probably wealthy, okay? So he probably didn't have much to gain. So picture with me, this is kind of like the same honor and shame equivalent of our parents paying for the bill. You know, like we go to family gatherings and there's this like awkward fight uh, between who pays the check, right? And we as second generation people, we've kind of inherited it, kind of, right? And we see our parents fighting for it. No, let me pay for the bill. Let me pay for the bill. And you're thinking, wait, mom and dad, I thought you said we're broke. Why are you trying to pay for like a $300 meal, right? And the reason why is because they want to maintain their honor. They don't want to come off as poor, um, shameful, you know, people. And so for Boaz's relative, um, the relative that was actually nearer to Elimelech, um, this was a good move to make himself look good. So Boaz, he's like, oh, crap, he's going to purchase it. Um, He's on his last move. And this is where he plays the trump card. Boaz tells the relative this. Oh, by the way, um, you did agree to purchase this land. But in addition to purchasing this land, guess what? You have to purchase Ruth. She's a widow. It's a packaged deal. And he just snuck that in there. And this is where the tides turn. The relative was in a dilemma. After being so sure about the land... And now when, with Ruth in the picture, he wasn't too sure anymore. It's way too expensive to not only buy the land, but to also buy Ruth. It's very costly. And the marriage would cause his entire estate and belongings to fall into the line of Elimelech, not his own direct line. And in those days, there's a huge concern and huge worry to maintain your own line. And remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She was an outsider. She wasn't an Israelite. So for him to also bring in um, this person from Moab who Israelites didn't really care about, um, it can really tarnish his family name. So if you can see, if you go through the pros and cons list, it's not worth it anymore to um, not only just purchase this land that belonged to a distant relative, but to also bring in this widow into his family. So the relative is like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. It's going to screw up my own inheritance. It's going to make my life much harder. So Boaz, you take it. It's all yours. So Boaz's plans, or his plan works. He officially purchases the land, and Ruth, and to make it official, it's kind of funny how they, uh, they added this detail, right? Um, you know, today we have, like, contracts, and we have notarization for signatures. That's kind of what officializes some sort of contract or an agreement. In those days, they took their sandal off and they gave it to the other party and they're like, it's a deal. Deal? Deal. Okay, cool. We're good. So they dealed, right? Everything's finalized. And now officially, Boaz has taken the land and he's also taken in Ruth. Now, why is this in the story in Ruth? If you look at the narrative from a bird's eye view, this story really doesn't have to be in here. If the author really wanted, he could have skipped this. But I think the reason why this is in the story is because the author wanted to highlight the contrast between the relative's self-interest and wanting to land for his own name, for his own glory, versus Boaz's 
interest for others. So there's a contrast that the author wants to show us. In this relative, we have this guy who's selfish, concerned for his own uh, inheritance and his line. And on the other hand, we have Boaz, who's a worthy man who is extremely selfless. And really, he's going the extra mile for Naomi and Ruth because he cares about them. You know, Boaz, he had nothing to gain from buying the land and redeeming Ruth. He had everything that he needed. But once he saw the hardship that Naomi and Ruth went through, he felt compassion and he felt the burden and he sacrificed his land, his crops, his servants, his wealth to selflessly provide for these widows who were really on the brink of dying or being slaves. So the book of Ruth, if we look at it from a bird's eye view, it's not just about faith, loyalty, and boldness, which are huge themes. But the book of Ruth is also about selfless acts of love. It's about showing compassion to those who are weak or vulnerable. And this story is a window for us as a church today to see and to be reminded of how much God loves us. I mean, were we not on the brink of spiritually dying? Were we not on the brink of being slaves to sin? Didn't God have everything that he needed? I mean, did God really have to sacrifice his one and only son for us? And I was just thinking about this, and what came to my mind was this. What did God gain from saving me? Like, I'm, I'm thinking about myself. What, what did God gain from saving me? Uh, I guess he gets some glory, but, dude, he could have saved someone else. He could have saved someone else in, you know, um, in an unreached area. Why did God save me? And I really think this shows that, you know, God works in his own mysterious ways. God is the author of selfless love. God is the author of this word that we've been kind of unpacking in the series, the word has said. And the characters of Ruth and Boaz point to the character of who they image, God himself. So in this first section, we see the contrast between Boaz's selfless heart for people who are vulnerable and weak versus the relative's interest for himself. Let's finish the book. So here we are in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, and it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered um, Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So to recap, Boaz and Ruth, they marry. It's a happy story. They have a kid. And Naomi, who lost her husband, who lost her sons, 
she gained a different son in Boaz and a grandson in Obed, and she nursed him. And the book pretty much ends by stating that Obed, the son of uh, Boaz and Ruth, was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And really, the author wants to show us that God used the faith and boldness of both Boaz and Ruth to eventually bring about the Savior who would eventually save and restore all of mankind. In the first week, I mentioned that really, Ruth is kind of like the origin stories of King David. And Boaz selflessly purchasing and redeeming a foreigner, Ruth, points to a future reality where Christ will selflessly purchase and redeem foreigners like us, people who are outside of his kingdom. So as we close the series, um, I just want to go over two things. The book answers two very important questions that are relevant for us today. The first one is this, who is God? The book of Ruth shows a lot. It gives us a lot of detail and information on who God is. So if you look at the book, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but God sounds very inactive and almost absent. Um, He's not present in any dialogue, right? Boaz doesn't talk to Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't talk to Ruth. He's only mentioned in third person. But here's the thing. Just because God is silent doesn't mean he's passive. You know, the author is trying to show us that God works behind the scenes, He's not always loud. He's not always in front. A lot of the ways in how he works, especially redemption and restoration in our lives, is very subtle. And, you know, to be frank, he doesn't have to speak to us and affirm us in order to redeem and restore us. The book of Ruth shows us that God is a God who hears and who sees I'm going to be honest with you guys. There are many times where I struggle in my relationship with God because there are so many times I want to talk to him and I want him to speak into my life, but all I get is silence. You know, rather than getting an answer or some clarity to take the next steps in life, it seems like God is just silent. And... You know, this is wrong on my part, but I've gotten cynical and pessimistic because of that. So whenever, so to give you an example, whenever I hear people say, hey, Randy, guess what? God told me this. Check this out, right? Or whenever I hear people say, you know what? God wants me to tell you this. All the red flags go up. And I'm just like, oh, yeah? When did you become a prophet? Because if you kind of forgot, uh, I think there's this, guy by the name of Joseph Smith, right? God apparently spoke to him, and, you know, he has some tablets, and boom, you have Mormonism, right? Oh, by the way, God also spoke to this dude named Muhammad, and Islam started, yeah? God didn't tell you anything. You're acting out of your own convictions, right? And this is kind of like my pessimistic heart. And it really shows that I hate the way how God communicates. I hate how he doesn't speak to me, and it's not, like, clear and vivid, It'd be nice if we had a burning bush in our backyard, right? Like, imagine, like, you're having a rough day. You go to your backyard, and, you know, the burning bush says, Randy, how's your day, man? You doing okay? Yeah. You know what happened 10 minutes ago? I know that was difficult, but I just want to let you know that that's going to serve to bless you in 10 years. Wouldn't that be nice? 
Like you go to the burning bush, right? And God is like, she's not the one. Run away as far as you can. Or that would be so great. Imagine if we had the burning bush with all the clarity, all the answers, all our problems figured out in life. But this book is a reminder that when God doesn't speak, God listens. God is a God who listens. He hears us. I wish I can carry, like, a normal conversation, like a normal dialogue with God. Um, kind of like, hey, like, how are you doing? Yeah. You having a good day? Yeah, cool. Um, and God is like, yeah, I saved this guy, this guy, this guy. Um, I'm also um, bringing judgment to this guy, this guy, this guy. Whatever, right? I wish I had kind of like a normal dialogue with God. But when I pray, when I'm laying my burdens, it looks like I'm talking to a wall. And all I'm getting from the other side is silence. Do you feel that way sometimes? So I thought this. Is it better to have a God who is constantly talking to you, right? He's emailing you. He's calling you, giving you advice. He's texting you Bible verses, right? He's retweeting you, Tim Keller stuff. Like, hey, this is legit. You, this, this applies to your life. You should read this, right? He's, he's messaging you. He's talking to you. He's blowing up your notifications. Or is it better to have a God who listens way more than he speaks, The book of Ruth is an important lesson on presence. Just because God is with you doesn't mean he's going to fix all your problems in life. God's presence doesn't mean he's going to give you a step-by-step manual on how to fix your life or how to reach success. God's presence simply means that he will be with you for all the years in your life. Every season, God's presence means you'll you'll never be alone. Ruth doesn't promise us that there's going to be an immediate end to our suffering. It doesn't promise an immediate end to our sins, our shortcomings, our problems, our struggles, our burdens, our baggage. But Ruth promises that God will be with us in every season, and that's actually better than him spoon-feeding us what we want. Who is God? God has a heart. God is a God who has a heart of redemption. He has a heart to redeem. And if you look at the book from the start, the book starts with death and emptiness. Right off the bat, the first five verses, Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die, Melon and Kilion. And she's, um, she becomes not only a widow, who suffered greatly during like those times, but she was a foreigner to a land that didn't really get along with her people. The book starts with death and emptiness, but the book ends with birth, new life, fullness. Ruth is really a book that shows answered prayers. And God does not only hear and see the struggles of Naomi and what she's praying for, but God also answered it. God restored the land from famine. He redeemed Ruth. And eventually he provided a husband and a kid. Not only do we see present redemption, the book of Ruth points to a future, uh, um, it points forward to a greater future redemption. And through Ruth and Boaz, God blesses his people with a faithful human king, King David, who will eventually make way for the divine king 
in Jesus. And church, really, like, this book should comfort us because it's a reminder that God loves you, that God sees you, he hears you, he listens to you, and he is even redeeming you in this very moment. And one day you will be fully redeemed when you see him face to face. That's the first thing that we see. Who is God? God is a God who hears and sees, and he is working redemption in our life. The second thing is this. Who is God's people? Ruth does a fantastic job in defining who God's people is. So if you look at the Bible, the Old Testament, your automatic assumption is this. God's people is Israel, right? They're ethnic Israel. But here we see, even in the Old Testament, that to be God's people is not just defined by ethnicity. It's not defined by gender, because a lot of males were celebrated during these times. It's not defined by your social status or where you're from. God's people is defined by faith. God's people is defined by um, people who mirror his his said. And I'm going to break this down soon. So to be God's people, then, is to mirror him. It's to live in his image. And this leads us straight into our application. Um, And it's this. Church, seek opportunities to show Hesed to others. Now, I want to, I don't like, okay, like, honestly, I don't like bringing, like, the original languages in my preaching. Um, But this is kind of, like, a very important word, so I'm just going to use it, okay? Um, So Hesed, we see translated in our ESV as steadfast love, kindness, faithfulness. But I think a more precise way to look at hesed, because there's such a wide range of meaning, is to view this word, hesed, as how God deals with his own people. So hesed, at the end of the day, is how God deals with his own people. And I looked at a a dictionary for y'all. These are all the definitions. Uh, Hesed can refer to joint obligation, right? Sounds like marriage. Um, Lasting loyalty, to show faithfulness, to keep faithfulness. Goodness, graciousness, proof of mercy. And if you look at this word and its occurrences, the Bible shows that hesed is really undeserved. It's not a reward for doing something right. It's like grace. And the powerful thing about hesed or his covenant loyalty, however you want to define this word, is that God remains loyal even when we stray away. So the application of Ruth, if we look at this big picture, is this. What God has done for you as his people and showing you has said, do that to others. I mean, isn't that what Jesus preached in his ministry? Everything that God has done for you in his acts of sovereignty and grace and love and compassion and patience, do that onto others. So let's think about it, church. Um, How has God shown you compassion? How has God remained faithful and loyal to you? How has God been patient and kind to you? And once we kind of recall specific ways and and the evidences and how we see that in our lives, we have the feel to do that onto others in love. And as we display um, hesed to others, we are pretty much doing what Ruth and Boaz are doing. Their character reflects the character of God, and that's how the world sees who Jesus is at the end of the day. At the end of the book, the author gives us a genealogy 
And this really shows that David comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz. Um, I don't know if you caught this. There's actually two genealogies. There's one right before verse 18, right right here. Uh, Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's one. And the second is this more bird's eye, broad view of the gene- genealogy that really, I guess the author decides to start with Perez. Um, this is weird. Um, number one, this sounds repetitive. And number two, why Perez? I mean, who is Perez, right? Um, like, why not, like, Jacob or Abraham? It's weird how you would want to start with Perez. But for us to understand this, um, to understand why um, he did the genealogy this way, is to understand the story of the first name mentioned and the story of the last name mentioned. And what the author is going to do here, he's going to draw some parallels. So for us to really understand, like, why the book ends this way, uh, we have to understand Genesis 38. Um, This is the story of Judah and Tamar. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah had three sons. His oldest, his name was Ur, was wicked. So guess what God did? God killed him right from the bat. So Judah, he goes to his second son. His name is Onan. And he says, hey, Onan, um, it's your duty as a brother-in-law to perform this marriage for your sister-in-law. So this is what they call, um, this is very technical, but I'll define this for us. This is what's called the Leverite marriage. So in those days, there was a law implemented that if you have an older brother who's married and that older brother dies, you as a second sibling are obligated to marry your sister-in-law. That is weird. That is really weird. So like if my brother died, I would have to marry my sister. Oh, that's like weird, right? So the... Okay, for our times, it sounds so weird, but the purpose behind this rule was for God to take, uh, to show his people to take care of widows. Widows are extremely vulnerable in these times. It's so hard being a widow. And what God wanted to do is for his people to, like, don't, be, don't just be concerned about your own well-being. Show some concern to those who are vulnerable and very weak. So Judah says, hey, Onan, it's your, it's your job to perform this Leverite marriage to um, um, the, the, um, Tamar, pretty much. So uh, something interesting happens. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, Onan pretty much refuses to do it. Uh, it's more graphic in Genesis 38, but, you know, let's remain PG-13 here. So let's say that Onan intentionally didn't get pregnant with Tamar, so God kills him as well. Right? So Judah, he lost his first two sons because they were being wicked. And there's the last son, Shelah. Shelah is actually too young to fulfill this role. So Judah tells Tamar, hey, wait till Shelah gets older. Then we're going to continue the family line through you two. All right? It's going to be Shelah and Tamar, and you guys are going to carry Jacob's name. But something crazy happens. I don't know why. I don't know what the motivation is. But after some time, Tamar actually dresses up as a prostitute. We don't know her intentions. She tricks Judah and gets, um, pretty much gets pregnant. And that child from Judah and Tamar is, guess who? Perez. So months later, Judah realizes that Tamar is pregnant. She's showing. And for Judah, he's probably thinking, dude, you're being sexually immoral. We got to stone you. So he gets a crowd, and he was like, dude, we have to stone her. She's violating the law. 
And Tamar says something very profound. The man who got me pregnant owns this ring, this belt, and this staff. And Judah, he looks at the ring, he looks at the belt, he looks at the staff, and he's like, oh, crap. That's my ring. That's my belt. That's my staff. Oh, shoot. She wasn't the cold prostitute. (laughs) That was Tamar. And you know what Judah's response is? after he realizes that he's actually the one who sinned greatly, he said this, Tamar, right, is more righteous than I. And towards the end of Jacob's life, later on in Genesis, he gives Judah the greatest blessing over all the other sons. Why? Judah was wicked. It's because he had the heart of repentance. He had the heart of humility. And we go down to David, we, he, we have here, right, Israel's greatest king of all time. But obviously, if we look at the story of David, we see that David has actually committed some terrible and heinous sins. Did he not? He committed adultery. He slept with Bathsheba, someone else's wife. And after that, to cover it up, he abused his power. Um, and he, by committing another sin and murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by sending him to the battlefield, the front, or the hardest, the harshest spot in the, batting, the battlefield. One can actually argue that the sins of David were actually greater and more wicked than the sins of Saul. I mean, David should have died for committing adultery. David should have died by abusing his power and leading, leading another man to um, be killed on the battlefield to cover up his tracks. But David is praised to be one of the greatest kings of Israel, and this is his legacy. David is a man after God's own heart. Why? This guy screwed up. He was a mess. And today he's celebrated by both Christians and Jews alike. Why? Because he had the heart of repentance. Church, I want to remind us that Jesus came from the line of Judah and Tamar. Jesus came from the line of David and Bathsheba. Jesus came from messed up, busted, wicked adulterers, murderers, idol worshipers. And when Jesus finally came and he walked the earth, guess what he did? He hung out with the tax collectors. He hung out with the prostitutes. He fellowshiped with the sinners. Do you know what this tells us? It tells us that we don't have to have everything figured out. We don't need to have all the answers um, and all the solutions to the problems that we face in life. This shows us that we don't have to be the most successful people. We don't have to pretend like we're someone we're not. We don't have to live up to any false expectation. We don't have to have control and security over the things in our lives. The only thing that God cares about at the end of the day, whether if you're broke or rich, you're stupid or smart, you're successful, or you're just a complete flat-out failure, is faith and repentance. That's the only thing God cares about at the end of the day, when it's said and done. And really, what God is showing us is this. My people are not people who are just morally good. My people are not people who just go to church on Sundays for the sake of it, or even pastors or church leaders. My people are those who have faith and repent. 
My people are those who display my character and my heart of compassion, my has said to the nations. And I will always, without a doubt, will always be with my people. I will never leave them. I will never forsake my people. And church, what a great encouragement that is for us. Surely, a lot of us are probably sitting here today, man, I don't know what's going on. Um, There's a lot of things in my life I I can't explain right now. Um, I look like a hot mess, right? My life is a hot mess. Um, There's all these things going on, not only with work. I have relational issues. My family is dysfunctional. Everything seems to be crumbling. And when those matters hit us hard, it's so easy to think, God is absent. God is silent. God is away. And it doesn't seem like he really cares for us. But church, do not be deceived because the book of Ruth shows us that God is a God who hears and sees. When he is not speaking, he is listening to us. And he will always be by our side. Let's pray together. Father, we find so much comfort in your word today. We find really the great blessing of your presence in our life. And God, a lot of times, I I just want to confess, we we take your presence for granted. Um, A lot of times, uh, we feel like you're not speaking to us, but God, you are speaking to us. Um, You speak to us through your holy scriptures. You speak to us through your spirit. And God, as your church, we truly, deeply desire to be people who display your character and your heart. We desire to be people who live out hesed to others. That God, in our character and our actions, we can display to the world how great Jesus is. And God, I pray that if we are struggling, if we are doubting your goodness, reveal to us your presence. Reveal to us the tender comfort in knowing, God, that you listen and that you see all things and you hear all things. And, God, that we are never alone. And would that lead us to greater faith and greater obedience? Would that lead us towards repentance? And, God, would that really lead us to be a church that makes disciples for your glory beyond all else? Thank you, God, for the testimony of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And God, we truly desire to be um, your people who care about the things that you care about. Life is tough, and God, we are kind of in between um, this weird time where there is suffering, even though you've you've inaugurated your process of redemption. Um, God, we're saved, but you're still saving us. So God, I pray that you would give us the eyes to look towards our future, um, our future life with you. And God, that you would um, help us to long for the day where we meet face to face, where we are fully redeemed, fully renewed, fully restored. Thank you for your word. Continue to guide and direct us to love you more and to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.